You're listening to the Trace Church Rock Rimmon podcast. All right, well, winter has officially arrived in Colorado. How many of you guys are like, bring it on? I love the snow. Where are you at? Yeah, how many of you guys wish you were in Florida right now? All right, yeah. Well, regardless of where you wish you were, we are glad that you're here today. Also, want to welcome those that are watching online. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, for all the sissies out there that wouldn't brave the snow, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, we also know that there's several people that will be watching this later on demand. And so thanks for tuning in wherever uh, and whenever you're tuning in from. And so guys, really, ser- seriously, thankful for being thankful for you being here today. Uh, I do want to take a moment and just go through a few talking points when it comes to COVID. And can I I just be, can I be transparent with you this morning? COVID sucks, right? I'm going to say COVID and you're going to say sucks. COVID, who knew that you would ever say that in church? I can't believe you guys would do that. Hey, um, let me give you a couple talking points. Obviously, you've probably heard that the governor has issued uh, another order that there's going to be gatherings of no larger than 10 or more moving forward right now with how quick, you know, COVID is spiking right now. We're keeping our eyes on it. If you don't know this, there is a variance uh, for houses of worship that allows us to meet up to 175 people. And you also probably heard that there were a couple churches in Denver that sued the governor over having to wear masks in church and uh, limiting the amount of people they were allowed to have in their gatherings, and they won. Now, I want to be really clear about something, okay? Uh, We don't take our cues from what other churches are doing. And that's great. If the leadership of those churches feel like that's what they need to do, that is great. We take our cues from Jesus and we do our best to do what we feel is best for you. And so we just need to let you know that we're praying, that we're processing and we're planning through a lot right now. None of this is catching us catching us off guard. We knew this was going to happen. And for what it's worth, for those of you that invested in our online church, which we're still putting components of that together, thank you. I mean, that was truly uh, something that we were anticipating. This is all something we were anticipating, which is why we knew we needed to implement this online church platform because it's probably only going to get worse and we're planning for that. So uh, here's what I would ask of you. Would you pray for us? Literally, like, and seriously, would you pray for us? On Tuesday, we're going to take an entire or about a half of a day and just process through all the potential scenarios and the decisions we need to make in those scenarios moving forward. But until then, we're going to continue to ask that you wear your masks. When you come in here, we, we've uh, encouraged you that you can take those off. Once you get in here, there may be a time where we'll encourage you to keep them on the entire time. And my hope is that you'll just be flexible with us. There's a lot of maneuvering right now. And uh, there's a lot that we have to make decisions about. And we know that every time we make a decision, it's not going to make everybody happy. And so if you would uh, just encourage our team members, if you pray for us, we would truly appreciate that. And that's what I want to do right now. I just want to pray for us. And then we'll dive into my sermon. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you that we do have the opportunity to gather together in your name. Uh, Father, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. There's a lot of chaotic things, a lot of uncertain things. There's obviously COVID uh, that's spiking right now in our state and in our city. And God, as a church, uh, we know that nothing should sideline the gospel. Uh, But there's also the safety of people that we have to keep in mind. And uh, Lord, we just want to be wise. That's it. We just want to be wise. And so God, would would you flood us, literally God, would you flood us with wisdom and help us to see the next wise thing to do? And Lord, I just pray for everyone in here that you'll keep them safe, God. You'll protect them from not only the virus, but uh, the potential of economic um, downturns and all the things that are in front of us, Father. I just pray uh, for your hedge of protection. I I pray for your favor uh, on the people in this room. And so, God, we'll submit that to you and leave that at the foot of the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said? 
Amen. Well, today, as promised, uh, we're going to be looking at the subject of the rapture. And uh, talked with several of you last week, and it's like, Aaron, you lost me. And I knew I was going to lose a lot of people, and I knew I was going to be flying up here, so I apologize for that. But one, one of the main purposes behind this series and the things that we're talking about is that if you happen to be one of those people that has got caught up in a camp that teaches certainty in their eschatology, we talked about that last week, I'm not sure we should ever find certainty in our eschatology unless it's one of those three things on the bullseye, which we'll look at here in a few moments. But if you happen to find certainty in your eschatology, I believe you have the potential to teach that. If you teach that, you have the potential to set people up for failure. And I believe it's completely okay to welcome ambiguity and even uncertainty at times when it comes to aspects of eschatology. Because, and again, if you're new to all of this, the, the word eschatology is just the study of the end times. And the reason that I want to look at the rapture today, specifically the rapture, and what's called a pre-tribulation view of the rapture is because I believe it has the potential, listen to me, I believe it has the potential to skew your view of our Heavenly Father. Now, if you hold to that particular, or you ascribe to that particular teaching and that opinion on eschatology, it's fine. We talked about this last week. I'm not here to cause any division. I think it's awesome to welcome debate when it comes to the subject of eschatology, when we talk about the end of the world and the end times and signs of the end times, but never should we allow our debate to lead to division over non-essential items of the faith. And in many respects, a lot of the things we discuss when we talk, when we talk about the end times and eschatology are non-essential aspects of the faith. So I think it would be healthy to go over some of our um, ground rules, the rules that we set in place last week before we do dove into this. Uh, I think we should revisit those. And one of them being is that eschatology is a subject that is going to draw out a lot of passion and a lot of opinion and you likely have a tradition, if you were brought up in the church at all, if you were raised in the Christian church, you were brought up with a tradition. And what you do is you bring that tradition, whatever you were taught, you bring that tradition to the text. And sometimes what we do is we already have our beliefs. And so we have to tell the Bible where we want it to go. That's not a healthy thing. And so regardless of what your tradition is, I'm just going to ask that you sideline it for our conversation today and just allow the text to speak for itself. Because anytime we bring our tradition to the text and our tradition tells the text, the Bible, where to go, I believe we lose. You heard me say last week, it's a statement I've made several times, a verse can never mean what it never meant. In other words, we don't get the right to tell the text what it means. It can only mean what the author meant it to mean when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote it down. I also talked about how this is a sexy subject in the church, which means there have been a lot of books that have been written on the subject. There's an intrigue, right? We have an intrigue about the subject. Who doesn't want to pull the veil back and pull the curtains back and feel like they've got a little bit of the inside scoop on how things are going to end? And so because we're intrigued, there have been some people, not all people, I'm not going to cast motive on people I don't know, but there have been some people that have capitalized on this. And they've written books and they've developed their entire ministry around the intrigue that so many of us have. How is it all going to come to an end. And so people have sold a lot of books. Some people have made movies. Some people have de developed entire ministries that people give a lot of money to, all on the subject of eschatology. And that alone should cause us to just pause and be like, okay, let's make sure that we're not just taking someone's word for it, including mine, but let's make sure that we're allowing the text to speak 
for itself. And one of the main statements that we came back to last week was don't allow your focus on tomorrow to derail your faithfulness today. In other words, it's okay to study this. I think you should study this. I think you should study the book of Revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that says you will be blessed if you study it. But we can become consumed by this to the point, and I've seen it happen many times. We get, we get consumed with this idea of signs of the end times and the end of the world, and we allow our focus of tomorrow to derail our faithfulness today. And once again, and I'll say it again, and I said it last week, and I already said it this morning, we should be careful to ever embrace a notion of certainty when it comes to our eschatology. And we can make opinions, and that's fine, and we can have opinions, and we can have positions, but when our opinions are turned into doctrines on the non-essential aspects of our faith, the church loses. So, in our time today, I want to remind us before we jump into it that these are the three primary areas that we would say these are the essentials when it comes to the study of end times, right? We have the second coming of Jesus. Absolutely clear. This is going to happen, that there's going to be a judgment day, and then our bodies are going to be resurrected. We're going to be given new spiritual bodies. These are the three areas that we live and die on when it comes to eschatology. These are the areas of certainty. Almost everything else is opinion. So let's be careful not to make our opinions doctrine. Now, for those of you that are new to the church and it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what is this idea of the rapture? Let me give you a quick flyover of a couple opinions uh, when it comes to the rapture. And there's a reason, again, one of the reasons why I want to teach on this specifically today is because if you hold too tightly or ascribe too tightly to this position, I think it has the potential, listen to me, to skew your view of our Heavenly Father. So one of the really popular opinions of this idea of a rapture is that before what's known as a seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be the rapture of the church. And what this means is that God or Jesus is going to come. And before this, this time period happens, when things are supposed to get really, really bad here on earth, Jesus is going to come and take us. In other words, if you're living during the time of this tribulation period, Jesus is going to come and spare you from all of these horrible things that are going to happen. Now, another view of the tribulation, uh, I'm sorry, another view of the rapture would be that it would happen here, that at some point Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, he's going to rapture his church, which just means take us up. Now, for our time today, we're specifically going to focus on this particular teaching because I think it's important that you know the tradition and the history of this teaching. And depending on the denomination that you grew up with or the teachers in Christian colleges that you've ascribed to, you might have been taught this as a biblical certainty. But I would suggest to you this morning that it is not. I've been in that group as well. I was taught that there's going to be this pre-tribulation rapture that God's going to spare us from all the pain and suffering that's coming our way, that Jesus is going to come and before things get really bad, that we're going to be taken up. And then I watched the Left Behind series. Anybody else just raise your hand? How many have watched the Left Behind series? And that kind of solidified it for me where it's like, yep. And I saw the pictures of you know people in the field or people walking down the sidewalks and then there's just like a pair of boots because the person disappeared. Like, yep, that's gonna happen and that's gonna be me and God's just gonna take us up. He's gonna spare us from all that pain and suffering. And for what it's worth, for those of you that have watched the Left Behind series, Kirk Cameron actually doesn't ascribe to this belief any longer, this pre-tribulation rapture belief. And for what it's worth, I'll show you my cards ahead of time. I don't either. 
Now, let me be clear. If you do, this is not a subject that should divide us. If you disagree with something that I say today, this should not divide us. This is a non-essential part of the church, and the only reason that I'm emphasizing it to the extent that I am is because it has the ability to skew your view of our Heavenly Father. So, with all of that said, let's jump into one of the main texts that is given as evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture. And I want you to listen, and I want you to look, and I want you to see if you actually hear this idea, this notion that God is going to come and take his people from the earth before things get really bad. Because this is one of the main texts. I want you, you know, you, you listen for it, see if you hear it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, in other words, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, you're going to get to see people again. If they put their faith and trust in Jesus, there's going to be a time where you get to see them again. Paul's encouraging the the Thessalonians with this text. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Just pause there for a second. The dead in Christ will rise first. What do you think of when the, if the dead in Christ are rising I'm thinking it's the end of the world. I'm thinking things are done. I'm thinking Jesus has come again and he is going to reestablish a new heaven and a new earth as we read in Revelation. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left. So if you're alive during the second coming of Jesus, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let me ask you a question. Did you hear a rapture in that text? Did you hear this idea, this notion that God is going to come and Jesus is going to come and spare you from seven years of horrible tribulation before he actually comes his second coming? He's going to come and spare his church take up his church, remove you from all of the pain and suffering that's going to come on this world. I can't speak for you, but I don't see that in the text. But people that have ascribed to this particular belief believe it's been around the church. Like, of course this is what we believe. It's the rapture. It's been around forever. Many modern Christians seem to believe that the concept of the rapture was always a part of Christianity, but I'm here to tell you this morning that it was not. Many scholars maintain that the rapture first came onto scene in 1830 when this young Scottish girl by the name of Margaret MacDonald had a prophetic vision and claimed a special insight into the second coming, and she began to share those views with others. And so if this is true, then this particular belief has only been around for 200 years. Now, all of this was parallel to this holy movement that was happening in Scotland at the time, and this holy movement was also called the New Pentecost, so it was getting attention around the world, and it attracted, pay attention because this is going to build a case, it attracted the attention of a young man by the name of John Nelson Darby, you may recognize that name, and so he came and he actually visited the revival, and according to his own testimony in later years, he did meet Margaret MacDonald, but he rejected her claims of this new outpouring of the Spirit, this new, so to speak, Pentecost. And some writers believe that he accepted her view of the rapture, and he adopted it 
into his system of teachings. Now, what you need to know is that John Nelson Darby had incredible influence in both Britain and the United States, leading many evangelicals to begin to ascribe and adopt this pre-tribulation rapture perspective, including a man by the name of Cyrus Schofield. Now, the reason this is incredibly important is because Schofield was the first person to write what we know as a reference study Bible. Now, if you have, many of you have an NIV study Bible, and if you do, that's great because it helps you to understand sometimes what you're reading in the Bible. What happens is you'll read kind of the top section of it will be the scripture, and below it, it will say, here's what that means. Now, you have to understand that during the time of Schofield, that there weren't too many people that were biblically astute, right? There, there weren't too many people that had been educated to understand how to read the Bible. And so now they have a study Bible in front of them. And because it was Schofield who was influenced by Darby, as he's describing what you're reading in the text, 1 Thessalonians 4 being one of them, he's explaining it as a pre-tribulation rapture. And of course, this began to influence different colleges, in seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary, Talbot Seminary, and Grace Theological Seminary, and even more currently, Moody Bible College. And so as you can imagine, as more students are graduating from these particular uh, academies and seminaries and Bible colleges, this pre-tribulation rapture view began to be more popular. Now, you might be asking the question, and it's a good question. If the text isn't so clear then why do so many people believe it? Why do so many people ascribe to it? And I think that's a great question. It's a question that we should absolutely look at this morning. And here's what I would suggest. And again, I want to be careful that I don't assign motive to anything and anyone because I don't know what their motive are. But because this is a sexy subject and because this does sell books and because certain people have developed and built entire ministries around the teaching of this, it's hard to go back on it even if at one point you taught that it was real. In other words, if you were teaching that you believed that there was a pre-tribulation rapture and you're writing books about it and you're teaching sermons about it and it's a part of the college that you teach from, and then at some point you look at the text and you're like, I'm not so sure that's as clear as I was once taught that it was. It's really hard to go back and tell people that you were wrong when you built your entire ministry around it. But do you know one specific name, one very popular name of someone who actually did go back on it and recant his belief on it? it? was Billy Graham. Many have suggested that Billy, in one of his books, uh, teaches a post-tribulation rapture, which means Jesus is going to come back, the world ends, and he takes up his church and he develops a new heaven and a new earth. That there's no notion of this idea of God coming and sparing his church and sparing all the Christians from the the sufferings and the, and the trials and the tribulations of what's going to happen in the seven-year period. And likely, Billy started to recant his belief on this because as he allowed the text to speak for itself, he started to notice that a lot of the supporting texts for a pre-tribulation rapture weren't as clear as maybe he thought they were. Let me show you an example. In Matthew chapter 24, this is an, a text that's often used to used to uh, refer to a pre-tribulation rapture perspective. But let me show you what it actually says. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, excuse me, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they, 
They would have been the unrighteous, the wicked, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And this is often used as a, an example, a text, to support this idea of a rapture. But if the rapture is supposedly Jesus coming and taking the righteous, the people of God, the Christians, before things get really bad, then this text doesn't support that because who is taken away in this text? The unrighteous. Let me go back and read it. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Who was left? The righteous were the ones that were left, not the unrighteous. So this can't be an example to use for a pre-tribulation view and perspective. Let me give you an entire, entirely different take on this. Here recently, I've been reading a book um, called The Hidden Place by Corey Tim Boom. If you have not read this, I would strongly encourage you to read this book. Corey was a Dutch Christian who, with her father and other family members, helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. Her family was arrested due to an informant in 1944, and it led her and her sister Betsy to a concentration camp where her sister unfortunately died. Now, Corey survived, and she wrote many books and spoke frequently in post-war years about her experiences. And I want you to hear from her. So imagine what she experienced in the concentration camps. I want you to hear from her what she actually has to say on this very subject. Here's what she said. There are some among us teaching there will be no tribulation, that the Christians will be able to escape all of this. These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the later days. For what it's worth, I wouldn't say they're false teachers. I would just say it was a differing of opinion. Um, but these are her words. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on across the world. I've been in countries where the saints are already suffer suffering terrible persecution. In America, the church is seeing, let the congregation escape tribulation. But in China, in Africa, the tribulation has already arrived. This last year alone, more than 200,000 Christians were martyred in Africa. Now, things like that never get into the newspapers because they cause bad political relations. But I know because I've been there. We need to think about that when we sit down in our nice houses with our nice clothes and eat our steak dinners. Many, many members of the body of Christ are being tortured to death at this very moment. Yet we continue right on as though we're all going to escape tribulation. In China, the Christians were told, don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, this is still Corey Tim Boom talking. Later, I heard a bishop from China say, sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, to stand and not grow faint. And then she continue, or concludes in this way. I feel I have a divine mandate to go and tell people of this world that it is possible to be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are training for the tribulation. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about when we 
when we teach this idea that there's going to be a rapture, in other words, God is going to come spare us. He's not going to allow us to go through suffering and pain and trials and tribulations. How much of an American perspective that is? Because what does that say to the Christians around the world that for centuries have been tortured and persecuted and have suffered for the sake of the gospel? What does that say about them? If you ask me this idea of a rapture, is a, a very American belief, right? I think I'd go as far as to say, if I'm just giving you my unedited opinion, the church in America is soft. We don't know what it looks like to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so when we're like, yeah, God's going to come spare us. He's not going to allow us to go through pain and suffering. I'm like, really? Really? And so what is that saying to our brothers and sisters around the world? who have been suffering for the sake of the gospel for decades, centuries even. Guys, I believe this has the potential to skew your view of our Heavenly Father because if we're looking to God to spare us, God like, hey, keep us safe, just spare us. Don't allow us to go through the hard times. Don't allow us to have to suffer for the sake of Jesus. When we think that God is actually looking down with that expectation, I believe it skews our view for, from our heavenly father, for our Heavenly Father because He didn't promise that He would keep us from suffering. He actually promised that we would suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so I want to read to you a text from the very, you know, when Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica and he's telling them where, you know, where people get this text that there's going to be a rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me show you what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1 and see if it lines up with this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture to save us from all the pain and suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness and all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment. And here's where I'm going to begin to pivot because I'm done talking about the rapture. I want to get incredibly practical. So I'm going to take this from this point in this text on, and I want to get really, really practical with us today. Bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. If you'll allow me, I'm going to take a strong pivot here. It's not lost on me that many of you in here this morning are hurting. Now, right now, I think our nation is hurting. Right now, things feel out of control. Right now, things are incredibly unpredictable and uncertain. But Trace, can I remind you this morning that life is uncertain. Tomorrow is uncertain. Our jobs, our safety, our health, it's all uncertain. And if I could be really transparent with you this morning as a leader, uh, there's not too many things that I'm confident about right now. But there is one thing that I'm extremely confident about. When my life comes to an end, it's not the end. Let me show you how Paul says it. He says, so we're always confident 
Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord, for we live by believing and not seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Him, to please Jesus. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Church, one day, one thing we all have in common is that one day we will all close our eyes for the very last time. And I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out, but you need to know that yes, Jesus is coming back and we're all going to be judged. And so as we get caught up in this conversation about end times, as that's probably surfaced in your family or with a group of other Christians where it's like, are we in signs of the end times? Well, let's just play it out. Let's just pretend that it is. Can I ask you a question this morning? If the time on our forehead, the stamped time on our forehead of however long we have on this earth is much shorter than we think it is, can I ask you a question? How are you with Jesus right now? How are you with Jesus right now? Where are you at with Jesus today? And if I could borrow words from the Reverend Billy Graham, if the Lord Jesus does come today, do you know where you're going to be tomorrow? I want to remind you of what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, if you'll openly declare that Jesus is Lord and that believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. If time is running out, and I believe Jesus can come back at any moment if you want my true belief, I believe he can come back at any moment. How are you with Jesus right now? Are you confident that you have handed your life over to him? Are you confident that you've accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you made a decision to make sure that your salvation can be secured, that you're given, that you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as we read in Ephesians. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to go old school on us. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then as I'm praying, I want every, everybody to close their eyes and bow your head. And if you're ready to make that decision and you've never made it or you feel like you've kind of been teetering on it, I want you to secure it today. If you confess with your mouth and if you believe in your heart, it doesn't matter when the end does come. Your salvation is secured and that yes, you will close your eyes here at some point for the very last time, but when you open them, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to know that you're going to see Jesus. So if you'll bow your head with me really quick. God, there could be just one person in this room today that maybe has flirted with this decision in the past. Maybe they've tiptoed around it, but they've never fully submitted to you what you call repentance, to turn away from their sin and turn in your direction. It doesn't mean they have to have their life figured out first. So many people err on that side thinking they got to clean themselves up first before they can come to you. But God, you want them as messy as possible because you want to be the one who locks arms with them to walk forward through any obstacle moving forward. If you're in here this morning, every head bowed still and every eye closed. If you're here this morning and you want to make that decision and secure that, would you just raise your hand? I see you. Bible teaches that if you mean it and if you truly 
are ready to make Jesus the leader and Lord of your life, that your salvation is now secured moving forward. Father, I pray for those decisions that were just made. God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would let them see that you want to lock arms with them moving forward, God, that you want to help them to navigate the pains and the struggles and the suffering of this life. You didn't promise that we wouldn't have suffering. You promised that we would, but you promised that we wouldn't have to do it alone. And so for those who made that decision and even for the rest of us, Father, I pray that you remind us that you are partnering with us through this life. And the worst thing that could ever happen to us, and maybe some of us feel like this is really bad, but the worst thing that could ever happen to us is that we would die. But if we die, we get to open our eyes to be with Christ. As Paul says, to die is to gain. So God, I pray for those decisions once again. Father, we love you. Thank you for that. Thank you for those bold decisions being made in your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.